If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue to work through the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And Matthew chapter 2, the passage that we'll be reading from, uh, can be found on page 758 of that Bible. It's a good question, perhaps not asked enough and not given perhaps enough thought of what does Jesus actually want out of us? What does he require of us? On the one hand, we would want to say that a simple trust and faith is all one needs. This is the essential contention of the Reformation, that what one needs is to need that they need him. This speaks highly of his grace and his kindness, of which we can hardly speak highly enough. But such an answer, while rightly highlighting his grace and his kindness, does not quite fulfill the entirety of the picture. After all, Jesus said that you will know his followers by their fruit, that there is something about the work of our lives that is important, that he thinks is necessary to actually have us identify as his people. He will say, not long from now in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's clearly, even in the mind of Jesus, even if you're just a red-letter Christian, you've got to go a little bit beyond simply acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. You've got to go simply above just trusting in him to actually be considered somebody who follows him. After all, we are to make disciples of Jesus, people who learn from him. As Jesus himself says at the very tail end of the Gospel of Matthew, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. To be right, to be honest, both of these are true. It does take some, just a simple faith and trust in the Lord It is right and good that we preach the grace and the kindness of Jesus Christ. If we are to preach the grace of the gospel, such grace must come without price or cost. As the famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said, if your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, you're not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's quite right. If it's not truly and utterly free for all who would come to him, then you're not actually preaching grace. We are right to uphold that and right to say those things. And yet, we must see the outworking of that faith in the lives of people. As Jesus himself says, it does no good to call him the Lord Jesus if you're not allowing him to be Lord over your life. We have a way of balancing these things. We tend to talk of what is actually needed for salvation, and we rely there upon the grace of God. And then we talk about the effects of that salvation, and we point there to our sanctification and the works that we do. But we need to be kind of frank about that. That entire system works much better in theory than it does in practice. What do we do with a lukewarm fellow who never seems particularly devoted? He seems never really greatly moved in his spirit, doesn't seem to have a true and persistent love for the people of God around him, yet he will gladly tell you that he is sinful, that Jesus Christ died for his sins, and that he entrusts himself to that. 
Do we just look at the confession and say, keep it up, Charlie? Or do we look at the effects and say, brother, you need to find Jesus? What of those many who are able to consider their own lives and see the rightness in the way in which they live, the morality of their own lives? They see the good work of their hands. They see their own consistency and perseverance as proof that they belong to God. Do we just look at the fruit and praise God for the work that is done in them and through them? Or do we perhaps get the strong whiff of legalism coming off of them and know that they are seeking their own righteousness as the basis of their salvation? These are not easy questions. Ones that I find people are asked considerably all the time. Typically, we are, we are people who want to analyze the salvation of other people. And I ask and answer those questions in a number of different ways. These are questions we ask of ourselves when we rightly analyze our own lives. They're questions we ask of, of other believers, sometimes brothers and sisters in the Lord, sometimes other people outside. What should we tell such people? Our text this morning seems far away from these questions, but I think that it speaks not so much directly to them, but indirectly to the way in which we would answer both of those types of people. Let us turn to this passage about Herod and our king, and let's hope that we find help here for our lives. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was the fo- fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of our Lord. This morning, as we consider this text, the first thing I want you to do is to be warned by Herod's hardness. Be warned by Herod's hardness. Herod was a particularly despicable human being.
and even his wife to this end. This is why Augustus Caesar was known to have quipped about Herod in particular, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son, which was quite the play on words in Greek, which sounds something like it was better to be his hus than his huias. So his actions here make a good deal of sense for him. This child was clearly a threat. And without the wise men coming back, he couldn't isolate the threat. He didn't know whose child it was. He didn't know where the child was. And so instead of a strategic strike, he does sort of a nuclear wasteland. In Matthew's text, though, none of this is actually known to us. Perhaps the people who read Matthew's text at first would have known what was going on. They, they would have remembered who Herod was and all the evil that he did. This was 60 or 70 years before Matthew wrote his gospel, presumably about the same distance of time that the Kennedy assassination or Martin Luther King's assassination was from where we are now. Nevertheless, if we read through Matthew's gospel, we could be lulled to sleep by his apparent help for the wise men at the beginning. He's he's even seemingly wanting to go and to see the child that he could give him homage and pay respects to him. Matthew quite clearly eliminates that immediately. As Herod was not of the divinic line, he was placed there by Rome. And this Messiah, this Christ, this King, would certainly awaken and enliven the people, dispossess him of his throne, if not kill him. So Herod acts the way one does when their very life and their identity is threatened. He eliminates the threat. For him, it is either kill or be killed. Still, even if we understand what he does, his actions are jarring, but they shouldn't be unexpected. They're not expected here because we know who Herod is. They're not expected because we know of his deviousness. We're not expected because we know that he is despicable. Rather, Matthew makes the case that they're known because of what has always happened, not because of who Herod is as a person, but because of who people are in their sin. Matthew says that the killing of these innocents in Bethlehem was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was a pivotal figure in the early parts of the building of the kingdom of God through Abraham. This particular prophecy is odd in the book of Matthew because it's not quite clear what it's meant to do here or how this is actually fulfilling what is written. It covers basically three time frames. It covers what happens in Matthew's day by referring to something that Jeremiah wrote in the exile, talking about a woman who lived back in Genesis. What is his point in saying this? Rachel was the preferred and beloved wife of Jacob. She had a fairly difficult life. Being infertile for a good portion of it, she was looked down upon by her sister, who was also Jacob's wife. Eventually, though, the Lord did bless her with two children, Joseph, he of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, and Benjamin. Benjamin was a hard birth, though. They were traveling at the time on the way to Ephrath. 
She didn't make it there. Having given birth, the birth cost her her life. Genesis 35, 19 reminds us of where she was died and where she was buried. Unironically, it reads this way. Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, in Bethlehem. Matthew clearly knows that. The book of Ruth remembers her this way. As Ruth and Boaz are about to get married, a blessing is put on their union by the people in the crowd there, and they say this, may the Lord make this woman, make, uh, make Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. It was by her giving birth, by her even expending her life, that she was able to build up the house of Israel. The point I think in this is that the kingdom of God has always been built through suffering, not as the kingdom of Allah is built through making others suffer, but by suffering itself, by journeying through suffering, as Rachel did, and even as Jeremiah quotes the people in the exile did, they suffered, and yet the kingdom of God would grow through this. And here, still the kingdom of God grows, even while it suffers. It always goes this way. Those who oppose the work of God, of his incoming kingdom, always fight, slaughter, deny the very coming of this king. In other words, what we read of is terrible, but not unprecedented. It certainly shouldn't be unexpected. And the truth of the matter is, we read of what Herod does here, and we sit back and we're fairly comfortable, knowing that such horror is not going to be anything that would be befitting us. We would never do such a thing. I'm not going to pull a juke on you and say, no, actually you would. I don't think anyone in here would. But we need to be clear about a couple of reasons why. We're not in a society that tolerates that. We're not in a position where we can pull that off. We're not in a position where that would help us at all. Herod had all of those things going for him. Herod is not unique. Herod is just bloodthirsty. Herod is not alone. He is just more obvious in what he is doing. The point that Herod is getting across is simple. He will not, under any circumstances, allow this Jesus to be his king. So many like to look at Jesus and see faith as a very simple thing. We proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ died for you. Just trust in that. You fail, it doesn't matter. You just come back and you trust in it. You just keep trusting in it. You just keep coming back. And Jesus is just continually good to you and kind to you. It doesn't matter if you're all that devoted. A simple faith will kind of get you in. But to be honest, throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus just doesn't talk like that at all. And again, it's not just the severity that we might find and expect out of Old Testament prophets, the Lord himself continually throughout the book of Matthew calls people to an incredible, incredible amount of allegiance to him. He's not like other kings. Other kings are worried about their geographical regions. Other kings are worried about their tax base. Other kings are worried about their military strategy. Jesus wasn't worried about any of that at all. He doesn't care about your abilities with a sword. He doesn't care about how much money you've got, but he does care about how much you have placed in him. He speaks about this often throughout the text of Matthew. 
If you want to follow him, you must be perfect and complete as the Father in heaven is, giving mercy to all people, not just to those who you want to give mercy to, not just to those you like, but giving mercy to all. He asks for his followers to lay down their lives. Metaphorically, yes, take up your cross daily and follow him. But in certain cases, quite literally, they will come after you. That's okay. Die for my sake. He calls upon them to leave their families behind. Let the dead bury their own dead. Come and follow me. I don't have a place to lay my head. You want to be my disciple, it will cost you. He routinely gives parables where the cost of entering the kingdom of God is every single thing you own. And if they hold back, if, if they work against his kingdom, if they don't do the things that he says, he talks like there's a storm that will come to destroy their security, that there is a rock that will fall upon them and crush them, that there is a terrible swift sword that will come and end them. Matthew 13, 41 through 42, has him saying this, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't get to hold back part from him. He asks for everything from you. You don't get to hold back and, and say, well, you can be king over this area of my life and you can tell me what to do here, but you, you don't get to mess with this. I, I, will, I will follow your laws when it comes to sexual purity, but I just don't want to be that generous with my money. Thank you. You don't, you don't get to say, listen, I, I will give mercy to those who are deserving, but there are certain people who just, just don't deserve it. I won't follow you there. I will give hospitality to family and friends. But if you think I'm, I'm going to open up my house to foreigners, you're crazy. When we don't allow him to set the rules and the regulations, the commands over all of our lives, we are no different than Herod. Different maybe in severity, but not in the way in which we are proclaiming, you will be king, but not here. You will be Lord, but not over this. I will not have Jesus as my king here. Jesus has strong words for those who resist him, who fight him, who wage war against him. Whether that is killing innocent children, or whether that is simply not allowing him to reign and rule as he has every right to. Friends, resist the hardness that pervaded Herod's life. Give all that Jesus demands of you. Lay down your life. Seek his kingdom. Honor him as king. Because it's good for you. And because Jesus Christ demands that of us. Time and time again, he puts this before us. Do not harden your heart to think that you can keep something back from him. He will not allow it. Resist the hardness of Herod's life. And speaking like this, we might be, in one sense, I think rightly, rebuked for making Jesus seem like any other despot 
any other tyrant, any other oppressor who tells you that it's going to be his way or it will be no way at all. And if you don't do what he wants you to do, it will be bloody and it will be brutal and it will be death that awaits you. And that's why when we look at Herod and what he does, it is comforting and reassuring to know that Jesus has talked about the way he is spoken of here. So while you need to be warned about Herod's hardness, you also need to be warmed by Jesus' gentleness. Be warmed by the gentleness of Jesus. It's right to be warned about Herod's hardness. We can be just as damned in our insistence to have our say, to be our own king and queen as Herod was. But in the same passage, in the very same verses, in the very same breaths, Matthew presents this could-be tyrannical Jesus as anything but. And here he's just a child. He's passive. But even in his passivity, he is welcoming us by being one of us. I think Matthew points this out to us in three ways. First, Jesus is spoken of here as the child. Commentator I read spoke of Herod and pointed out that Herod didn't seem to be able to get it out of his mouth that Jesus was to be king. When he talked to the wise men, when asking the very technical question about when the Christ was to be born, he had to use the word Messiah. He had to speak of the Christ. But when he spoke directly about the child, he could not speak of him as king or Messiah. But instead, he looked at the wise men and said, tell me when you find the child where he was. The commentator's point was that he just couldn't take it upon himself to even lie about the quality of this child who was born. I don't know if that means anything to you. I don't know how much stake I put in it. But it did start to catch my eye. Because Matthew has a number of names and titles that he has used for Jesus up to this point. He's called him the son of Abraham. Not just a son of Abraham, but the son of Abraham. As we talked about last week, something greater than Isaac is here. He's the son of David. And even as we say something greater than Isaac is here, something greater than Solomon is here. He's given him the name Jesus because it's a reminder that he will save his people from their sins. He's given him the title Christ because he is indeed the anointed one who has been sent by God to accomplish the will of God amongst his people. He's given him the title of king because he is to reign and to rule over his people. He has been called Emmanuel because he is God with us. Not, not just a reminder that God is for us and that God cares for us, but literally God embodied with us. Yet in this passage, Matthew continually ignores every single one of these designations. The angels, the narrator, and Joseph himself continually call Jesus simply the child. And in doing so, he wants to place ever before us the fact that this great king, the awaited powerful Messiah, the one who is the savior of the world, who is going to save his people from their sins, God with us, has not come to us to show his might over us, but he has come to us to show his love for us. He has not come, as Jesus would say elsewhere, to lord it over us, but to be a king amongst us, but to identify with us. So even as he is God on high, who upholds the entire universe with the word of his power, we see him here as a child, perhaps a toddler, 
weak, without understanding, needing protection, needing care. Jesus shares completely in our problems and our weaknesses, not in our sin, but always in sin's effects among us. You probably feel at times thrown about by the whims of the world, completely outside of your control or the things that happen around you. You can't control inflation. You can't control the IRS. You can't control recessions. You can't control natural disasters. You can't control the managers of your company and the mistakes they made. You can't control accidents that come along your way. So, also Jesus here can't control anything that's happening around him. He's completely at the whim of his parents to do what is right, of God himself to help give him direction and comfort. You might feel at times like you are oppressed by the powers of the world who seek your harm and demonic. No doubt, Herod is pictured here as demonic. So also, Jesus. You are frail in body and health. So also, Jesus. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is shown to know what it means to be weak and weary and worn out, tired and pressed down by the weight of the world, worried and concerned for those he loves, knowing the great danger that he places those who love him in. In doing so, he identifies with us. Secondly, he identifies with us by being Israel. The whole nation kind of is summed up in who he is. He doesn't just identify with us by being like us in need and care, but he identifies with us by doing what we and the people who walked before him were unable to do. Here that is shown by his being kind of a substitute Israel. Matthew is setting a precedent that he will continue to bring up and up again and again. Notice that the angel that comes to them doesn't just say, listen, there is danger here, so you need to up and leave. Take the boat to the closest place you can, just get out of town. I hear Turkey's nice this time of year, perhaps try a little bit of Greece. He says, you are to take the child and you go to Egypt. He does this so that scripture might be fulfilled. And this, like many of the other scripture quotations that Matthew makes, especially in this particular portion of the second chapter, tends to throw people off. Because if you read this quotation, and then you go back to Hosea, where he's quoting it from, and you read what Hosea says, you wonder how in the world he ever thinks that this is a prophecy. Because it doesn't read like a prophecy. It reads rather like he's just reporting history. That the people of Israel went down into Egypt. And then, as we have spent months talking about prior to this, God called them up in the Exodus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In Exodus 4, he calls the whole people of Israel his firstborn son. He says, out of, Ex- out of Egypt, I called my son. And Hosea doesn't seem to be prophesying anything. He's just telling you what had happened. So what is Matthew doing here? How, how in the world can this be a prophetic looking ahead to see that Jesus was going to not only go down to Egypt, but be called up out of it. Well, it's, it's not that. My senior year of college, we had to do an entire project. And that project was a month long. We were to go into the engineering office and 
they had a sign-up sheet, and we were to sign out at a specific time, and they gave us a packet that was for us and our eyes only. We were given it. We had to sign what time we got it, and if it wasn't returned with our finished project a month later, we, well, I'm sure that they wouldn't have failed us, but I didn't actually try it out. So you were supposed to get it back to them, and, and it had to be sufficiently done. This project that they gave you, we were designing a chemical plant. You had to, you had to sufficiently do this within a month's time in order for them to say that, that you passed the qualifications that we might be able to call you an engineer. And if it's not sufficient or if it's not turned in on time, then you don't get to be called an engineer. We're not gonna, we're not gonna let you pass this class and if you don't pass this class, you don't, you don't graduate. Let's be quite clear. No one in the chemical engineering office was prophesying that I was going to pass that thing. When they said, you need to do this in order to fulfill the requirements, they weren't prophesying about that. I had a, an engineering professor who looked at our entire class and said that we were going to kill thousands of people because we were idiots. Trust me, they did not think any of us were going to graduate. The whole point was, this is a qualification for it. What Matthew is doing is, again, setting a precedent. He's saying, if Jesus is to be a substitute for his people, then he must be a substitute for Israel. In order to be a substitute for Israel, out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is fulfilling it, not in the sense that it's prophecy, but in the sense that it qualifies him for the very role that he has been picked to do. He is a substitute for the people of Israel. As they were called out of Egypt, so would he. It's important then to realize that Jesus doesn't come and stand over Israel He's not coming as a scold to tell Israel how they've gone wrong. He's not coming to them to reproach them and rebuke them only. He is coming to be their representative in their stead. As we report of the gospel, he dies in our place. He takes up our sins and our transgressions upon himself so that, that he might bear them in our stead. He does the faithful walking that we were unable to do. He's not there to lord it over them but to be holy where they failed, to be strong in the Lord where they were weak, to be them when they couldn't be. Far from being a despot or a tyrant, he's just a humble king. One who walks with his people, cares for his people, suffers for his people, helps his people. As Hebrews says, he is like us in every way except without sin. And as a high priest, he is incredibly sympathetic to us. His placement here as a child, his being placed here as Israel, and lastly, his being placed here as a Nazarene. If the quotation from Jeremiah and the quotation from Hosea are difficult, scholars have absolutely no idea what to do with verse 23. Joseph and Mary travel with Jesus but realize that going back to Judea is probably not a good idea, so they're going to go where no one's going to find them. They head up to Galilee and they go to a town called Nazareth. Matthew says that this fulfills Scripture again, but if you have a concordance or you've got some sort of way of looking up Nazareth in the Old Testament, you're going to be sadly let down because there is no Nazareth in the Old Testament. And there's a good reason why there's no Nazareth in the Old Testament, because when the Old Testament was written, the town of Nazareth didn't exist. There was no town of Nazareth. And as a matter of fact, it was so small and insignificant that for the vast, vast 
length of history that we have lived in, there has been no mention of Nazareth anywhere outside of the Gospels. So that early scholarship thought that the Gospel writers were just making the town up because we had geographical surveys by good historians and not one of them ever mentioned Nazareth. It's not until recently that we've got external evidence outside of Matthew and John and the Gospels that Nazareth even existed. So why? How, how can he say that this is what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene? Well, there's a couple of things that are different about this. One, it's quite clear that it is spoken by the prophets. He's not identifying one prophet. You'll notice every other place that he seems to quote something, he's quoting from one prophet. He says, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Or back in verse 15, the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here it's the prophets in general. It seems to be, this is just a theme that kind of runs through them all. There are many contenders for meaning. Many think that it's a wordplay on the idea of holiness, which probably holds some truth. Some think it's a wordplay on the idea of a a branch coming up out of the stump of Jesse. Some think that it's a wordplay on watching and guarding. I don't think any of these truly works. I think that there's an easier and maybe even a bit more clever situation going on here. Nazareth was unknown, both to the people of the day and in the Old Testament. This is why Nathanael, when introduced to Jesus, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's not because Nazareth was was despicable, but because Nazareth was insignificant. What, what good comes out of Nazareth? What does Nazareth produce? Throughout a number of Old Testament texts, especially in Isaiah, it is admitted that the Messiah comes from incredibly obscure places. So earlier in the book of Matthew, they know where he's going to be born, Bethlehem. But in the book of John, they quite clearly don't know where he's from. And this is a, a very different thing. They, they know that he was born in Bethlehem, but they don't know where he's actually from when he's an adult. In John seven twenty seven, the scribes say to one another, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he is from. Zechariah proclaims that the king will come in humble, riding on a donkey. That humility is portrayed all the more when he says that he is going to be rejected by his sheep. He will be pierced by his people. They won't recognize him as their king. Psalms 22 and 69 are important in describing the work of the Messiah, but clearly the whole of those texts imply that the people who are there do not recognize him as the Messiah. He's, he seems insignificant. Isaiah, again, depicts this probably better than anything else. Isaiah 49, 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This, this deeply despised one who is abhorred by the nation, who is a servant of rulers, this one who is, is obscure in the most, who is unfamiliar, humble of origin, eventually, people will realize who he is and they will come and they will prostrate themselves before him. There's nothing better than Isaiah 53 to drive this point home. Who has believed what he has heard from us? 
and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, which is just a, I know nothing about farming. If you ever need help with plants, you really should ask somebody else because I, I don't care for them. I don't like to eat them, although my wife forces me to. I don't like to deal with them in the dirt, but I do know this. Dry ground does not easily yield up seedlings. The whole point of what Isaiah is saying there is, is like a root coming out of dry ground, like, like a sprout coming out of nowhere. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The whole point of this is saying that he was unrecognizable. He was of lowly estate. This is quite the opposite of the bombastic rulers of the day. They were almost all from great families, almost all known, almost all set aside for their own greatness. People knew when they were coming up exactly who they would be, exactly what they would do. Even we in our day, we're a democratic society completely unheard of in their day. Men from any level, women from any socioeconomic level can rise up to be president of the United, the, the, the most powerful person in our political world. But almost universally, especially today, we realize very few men of humble origin actually do that. Almost every senator and every congressman and every president and everyone who runs for president is well off. They have means, excessive means at that. How much more then? Rulers don't come from humble origins. But Jesus isn't like other rulers. He clearly makes his home with common folk. He comes out of their stock. He is grounded and normal in almost every way. And all of this combines to underscore the point. It is harder to approach your congressman than it is Jesus Christ. Jesus is eminently approachable. He's kind. He's courteous. He doesn't look down on you and despise you for your situation. He doesn't look at your humble surroundings and think you less than him, not simply because he's kind and courteous, but because he grew up in that situation. He was humble. He is humble. He knows that he is the prince of heaven, and he knows that he is, he is the child of a mother and an adopted father who had nothing. A refugee. One who had to leave because his life was in danger and come back because his life was finally cleared. He does not simply put up with you. He knows what it is to be like you. What it is to have the world around him seem big and strong and difficult. His humility extends to you. It's part of who he is. He's filled with grace for his humble. And he's filled with mercy because he's gentle. He knows you. He walks in your shoes and he loves you all the same. So we are right to stress both sides of who Jesus is. He demands everything from you. There is nothing in your life that he has not called for you to give up for his sake and for the kingdom of Christ. And yet he is willing and gracious to give all of himself at the same time. 
He gives up everything. He humbles himself, not just to become a man, but to go to the cross for your sake, to take sin and shame away from you. He is not a God who is unwilling, a Christ who is unwilling, a king who is unwilling to lay down all that he has. So he has every right to ask you for all that you have. So as we go back to our original question, do we praise the confession of the lukewarm brother? Or do we rebuke the lack of works? Yes, we do both. Do we praise the Lord for the works that we see these people doing? Or do we lament the pride of their accomplishments? Yes, we do both. We will continually put both sides before ourselves, not in confusion, but faithfully. You are to give your life fully to Jesus, completely and without reserve giving yourself over to his decrees and commands, for they are good for us, but knowing at the same time that the one who is demanding of us is also the one who is that kind and that gracious to us that he would give of himself in the same way. He gives without reproach. He loves without condition. He accepts by his own sacrifice and not by yours. So take him at his word. Come to him. All who are weary, and heavy laden, and he will give you rest, for his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Let us pray. Father, help us yield our lives up to you. We are prone in sin to control what we have no control over, to seek control where we have no right to seek it. We are prone to pride where humility ought to reign. Let us keep in mind this great transaction you have made with us. We give up what was never to be ours and that which we could not keep to gain that which, as it is said, we can never lose. You ask all of us, but you give more in return. Such is the great grace of our God. Lead us into repentance that we might know the greatness of your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things for our good and for his glory. Amen.